then we'll uh, hand over to, to Robert and the team who will lead us in a couple of songs. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we have more than religion, a set of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts that do nothing but weigh on top of people and crush them under unrealistic expectation. But what we have with you through Jesus is a loving relationship, like a husband and a wife, like, like a father and son. And we have this closeness, Lord, that we should not by rights have. But because of who you are, because of what you have done, you have made this possible for us to know you, the one who speaks and puts stars in, in, in orbit, the one who speaks and breathes life into a womb, it is the same one who wants to be in our evangelical church and speak to us and to know us. It is wonderfully humbling. And so, Lord, we come to you and ask that we would not only know you, but be known by you. Lord, that there would be that uh, relational interaction tonight, Lord. Save us from routine. Save us from religious appearances. Lord, that this would be something profound because it's real. Because we're, we're, we're talking to you. We're hearing you speak to us. And, and Lord, such an interaction, such an exchange, we should not leave here the same way that we came in. And so, Lord, speak. Give hope to the hopeless. Give peace to the restless. Bring uh, answers and confidence to the cynic and the skeptic. Lord, may we know joy. May, may we have that confidence that perhaps so many are missing or searching for and not quite finding. Lord, we know because we find it in you. And so, Lord, we ask that you come and meet the need, even in this place tonight. I will ask this in your name, for your glory. Amen. Okay, folks, we're turning to Hosea chapter 10 tonight. Now, uh, if you go to the part of your Bible where all the pages stick together, that's normally where Hosea lives. Um, now, it's not a small book. There's 14 chapters in it. But if, if uh, the words are going to be all up on the screen, but uh, if you're not sure where it is, go to uh, the middle of your Bible. That'll be about the book of Psalms, probably. Uh, and then keep moving forward. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes... Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Um, now, Hosea is a bit of a funny one. It's a bit of a complicated book, but it's, it's a good book. Uh, and it's hard because we're coming into the middle of it rather than uh, at the beginning. But let me try to sort of just explain to you very quickly what's happening. Basically, Hosea's problem with the people that he's writing to, that he's speaking to, is this. He's asking them the question, what made you think you could do it by yourself? At what point exactly did you think that the rules stopped applying to you? 
where did you think all of a sudden, okay, God brought us this far, now we can do it by ourselves? Where was your thinking in this? What is it that you think we're really here to do? Who is it that you think we're really here to be? And what Hosea is trying to do through this book is show the people that not only does their sin break God's heart, which it does, but that their sin also has consequences. Psalm 89, 14 says that uh, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's where it starts with God. And so God just can't ignore their sin. And he wants to forgive them. He wants to restore them. He wants to bring about this fruitful relationship between them. But the truth of it is, they're not really all that bothered. They're they're just not that bothered about it uh, and what God's wanting from them. Uh, It's not that they're not going to repent, that they're refusing to. It's not that they don't want to say they're sorry. It's just they don't think they're doing anything wrong. Why, Why should we say sorry? No, we're fine. We're doing it fine. What we're doing is fine. I don't know if you've ever tried to deal with people like that, all right? If you have an annoying neighbor or you've got friends in school or you've got some sort of... And they're clearly in the wrong. And it's like, you do realize this is wrong? No, it's not. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, and it's like, why can you not? Or in my head, I've got, you know, the picture, the, the videos of those toddlers and they've been eating chocolate cookies and they've got the chocolate all over their mouth. Have you been eating chocolate cookies? No. Yeah, you have. No, I haven't. <laughs> it's like, how do you actually convince someone that they're in the wrong? And this is the scenario that Hosea and God finds, find themselves. And so what happens is God, metaphorically speaking, anyway, brings them to trial. And he says, right, since you're refusing to admit what's going on, step into my courtroom and I'm going to lay out all the evidence, and let's see if we can come up with a conclusion then. And that's what's happening. I'm going to have to prove to you. I don't want to do this, but you've kind of twisted me on. Okay, and so chapter 4 and 5 of Isaiah is God convening the court. Chapter 6 is Israel's appeal. It's kind of like, oh, whoa, we're really in a lot of trouble here. Uh, I'm sorry. And God's like, no, you're not. You're sorry that you're in court. You're sorry that I've called you out on this stuff. You're not sorry that you've done something wrong. You're sorry that you've got caught. Chapter 7, then, is God rejecting that appeal that they've issued. He can't let it go this time. They've gone too far because their true, the true condition of their heart is being discussed. And in these chapters, chapter 7 in particular, there's all these really beautiful and quite funny um, pictures that he, God refers them to. Um, so Hosea calls Israel an unfaithful... Um, a promiscuous wife um, and different mother. But he also says, oh, you do, you do politics like silly doves. I don't know what that really means, but I just kind of have this idea of birds doing politics. To me, that's funny. Um, or or um, you, you lust like an overheated oven. It's pretty funny. Uh, you lust like an overheated oven, um, which is kind of like church tonight. It's really warm, isn't it? Um, can we crack a few windows or something? Can we do something? About that, just um, can we open that door? Even Justin, okay. Um, uh, Hosea also calls them a half-baked cake. So I just love the idea that in the Bible it sort of says, "Yeah, you're half-baked," um, and also you're a stupid donkey. 
or a dumbass is maybe how they call it, but you're a stupid donkey. And it's, it's really visual. And in the chapters 8, 9, and 10, you have the sentences. And so we're going to jump to the end of chapter 10, um, or the start of chapter 10. And, and we read that God is speaking and he says, Israel is like a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear the guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars, for now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And the king, what could he do for us? We're kind of over God now. We're kind of past that. What's that really going to do for us? We're the kings of our own lives now. We're the masters of our own destinies now. Verse 4, they utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Okay, so the idea is God saying, look, you should have been these beautiful, tasty, luxurious grapes in the middle of the Middle East. Okay, and it's mainly desert. Okay, and so if you find an oasis, if you find water, if you find fruit, especially really big, juicy grapes, that's special in the middle of the desert. God's saying that's what Israel should have been like compared to the rest of the world. You should have been like this oasis for people. You should have been like finding grapes in the desert. And so the verdict is in. And the nation has no roots. It doesn't bear fruit. And we've been talking about those things. And then verse 4 says judgments or, or lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds. Society has got to a point where... where um, they don't trust one another anymore. They're, they're, there's no community. There's no sense of being for one another and working together. And so everything is bound up in contracts and contracts and contracts and legal documents. And they are continually suing one another, taking each other to court to make sure they get what they deserve or getting what they think they owe and, and maintaining their contracts. And what you'll find is that the multiplying of rules and, uh, and, and the adding of, and layering up of laws and rules and regulations, it's evidence that in society, integrity and credibility are vanishing. That's pretty much where we are as a society in 2019, isn't it? I mean, the amount of rules that we have now, the fact that it has to be written out for people, the fact that it has to be put on a sign for people, otherwise, how am I supposed to know I'm not supposed to put my hand into the machine that crunches everything up? You really should know. But because we're in a society that we have all these rules and we have all these regulations and we're scared of getting sued, we have all these rules and regulations. Because people don't really trust one another to not take each other to court. And then he kind of goes down through the verses. We'll not read them out, but he's kind of calling out different tribes for the specifics. And then in verse 12, he says, Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Now, we've been talking about this for the guts of a month sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping. If you want things to change, you have to make the change. And so if you want to see righteousness, if you want to know love in, in, in the land again and among yourselves again, then you have to sow it if you're going to reap it. It's the law of the harvest. And then he says, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that I may come and rain righteousness upon you. Now, maybe that sounds familiar. It's kind of what John the Baptist was saying in Matthew 3 when he talks about repenting and bearing fruit again. 
But to fully understand what he's saying here, especially with this idea of being fallow, um, I, you have to build up a good idea of what being fallow means. I used to think that it was just waste ground, okay? Uh, ground that had been left, abandoned, um, but it wasn't good soil. Um, you couldn't use it for farmland. You couldn't use it uh, to grow crops because for whatever reason, it was just a bad field. It was bad soil. It was insufficient for the task. But that's not quite what the word means. The, the word fallow uh, means land that was bought with a purpose. It's been redeemed. But whether through the inability or on behalf of the farmer or perhaps even carelessness on his part, the field has been neglected. And even though it could be used, it remains unused. That's what fallow means. Usable, but unused. And so in the middle of all the hurt and the hassle, despite the fact that God is having to be quite harsh with them and having to lay out some home truths in a fairly blunt way to try and get them to see that they have indeed sinned, that they have indeed kind of been messing around and kind of going the wrong way, that they are the ones in the wrong here, that still does not mean that God doesn't want to use them. Just because they're in the wrong doesn't mean that God doesn't want to still use them and make them productive. That just because they are not what they ought to be now doesn't mean they cannot be what they should be. He wants to use them. He wants to restore them. He wants to bless them. But it has to start by them admitting that they're in a position of being wrong. They are fallow. Land that could be productive, but for whatever reason has not been broken up, has not been tilled, has not been plowed, has not been maintained. And so, yes, Hosea maybe isn't fun reading. It's not light reading. But it is rooted deeply in God's desire to forgive and to restore and to enjoy his relationship with his people. And Hosea is about being, having that reality check for the other people in the covenant. Guys, we're in the wrong. But God hasn't changed. His, his plans are still the same. But we maybe need to get ourselves in, in order. Okay? And, and so here's what I want everything else that we say in church this evening to underpin. Just because you feel like you are done with God does not mean that he is done with you. It's as simple as that. Maybe you think that God is done with you, but that does not mean that God is done with you. And so regardless of mistakes or regardless of conscious decisions that you've made, whatever it is, however bad it is, however painful it is, however long it has been, God has not given up on you because he believes in his power to forgive you. He believes in his power to restore and he believes that his grace is sufficient for any sin because it's about who he is, not who we are and what we have done. So even if it's been a very unfruitful time for you spiritually, uh, yes, sometimes God is going to have to lay out a few home truths for you. And honestly, that's on you because you weren't listening whenever he spoke nicely to you. 
but he is still pursuing you because he has not given up on you and he wants to restore you. He wants to make you fruitful. And that's what Hosea is saying. So reap and break up that fallow ground. Let's get rid of that idea of being usable and, and having that potential and not fulfilling it. Let's do something about it. It's time to seek God. It's time to make a move. It's time to march on. It's time to actually start doing something instead of just sitting back and allowing all the other stuff to happen to us. So how do we do that? How do we kind of make this transaction from being usable and unused to being usable and used for God? How do we turn that around? Well, when it comes to fallow ground, you have to plow the field, which means clearing the field of debris. It's hard work. Any farmer will tell you that sowing the seed is the easy part. The hard bit is plowing the field beforehand. Last Saturday, I started digging up flower beds around the house and um, putting down new stones and putting new, new plants in and all the rest of it. Now, the theory was fine. What was hard was that when you get started, you realize that there are some really big stones in there and some old tree trunks that have some really awkward roots that need to be shifted. And the problem was that these stones, they were heavy. And they were embedded in, in the soil because they'd been there for so long. Those tree trunks, yes, they, they'd been cut down, and you maybe couldn't see them, but the roots were still there. And they were, they were just spreading out around the place. And even though it looked good on, from the topsoil, the flowers weren't really going to take in those conditions. So we had no choice. Get the spades out. Start digging. Now, that rule is simple enough to apply to our own lives. Because maybe you're far from God, or maybe you're not in the right place spiritually, or maybe you're not as close as you once were. Whatever way you're thinking about it, whatever is, is uh, accurate for, for you, whatever way it is, you're not where you ought to be with God. How do we start addressing that? How do we start fixing that? Well, if you're not really bothered, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't really have anything for you. I can't convince you otherwise. That, that has to come from you. But if you're like the people who's uh, here who are starting to twig on to the seriousness of this, then there's good news. God still wants to restore you. He wants to use you. So what do we do? We want a big harvest. If we want to be productive and fruitful, we've got to clear our lives of the debris. We'll have to get rid of the stuff that holds us back and holds us down. We'll have to get rid of the stuff that's going to stop the seeds from taking root and growing. Some of the stuff is going to be obvious, and some of the stuff is going to be easy to see. Some stuff will be harder to see. Some things will be deeper down. We'll take some probing. It'll be hard work. It'll be a lot of sweat. And honestly, here, here's the thing. A farmer doesn't plow the field just once. But every time he wants to sow more seed, got to apply the field again because things have a way of encroaching 
things have a way of getting in. And so he has to keep plowing the... Or let me mix my metaphors, and I apologize. I don't like it when I mix my metaphors, but I do it all the time, so sorry. The hardest thing about milking cows is that they never stay milked. You've got to keep doing it. You can't just look after the field once. You've got to keep doing it. And so we've got to clear our lives of those things that get embedded in our hearts that hinder the blessings in our lives, whether it's laziness, whether it's a love of gossip, whether it's apathy, whatever it is, if it's hindering the harvest in your life, if it's getting behind the things, then it's hindering no one else other than yourself, and we need to address it. It's something that I've confessed a few times before here. I don't have a lot of battles. And I'm fairly sure that you don't have a lot of battles either. What we tend to have is a lot of battles over the same ground. It's the same issues. Or it's the same people. And it's the same things, and we fight those battles over and over and over again in our lives. There's times where we think we've got a victory, but if we don't pay attention, we find ourselves fighting those battles again. And that's probably true for most of us. If you have fought pride, it's going to be something that you probably have to keep a steady eye on. If you're inclined towards gossip, you'll have to wrestle with that temptation to get involved in gossip again. You have to keep your eye on it. You have to be careful because we all keep coming back to the same battlegrounds. Because Satan knows that's where we're weak. That's where we're vulnerable. So that's where he's going to put the pressure on. Because victory one day doesn't necessarily guarantee victory the next day in the next battle. So we have to keep plowing. We have to keep making sure that our hearts are, are, are clear of debris. And sometimes those roots go deep. Those big stones that have been there a while, they're embedded. It will be hard to shift them. Maybe there's a deep hatred of someone. Boy, that has to come out. It'll take a lot of work, but it's got to come out. That willingness to forgive, that desire, to, that cho- choice to forgive has to happen because it's going to affect the harvest. And look, the, the easiest thing to say is, Jeff, look, listen, you leave it be. It doesn't really take, it's not really doing any harm. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not offending anyone. I'm not discouraging anyone. Just leave it be. But don't you understand, that's exactly the problem with fallow ground. This is exactly the thing that God is calling people out on in Hosea. See, just because it's not doing any harm, it's not doing anyone any good. That's the point. This is God's complaint. You're supposed to be this luxurious grapevine. You're supposed to be a blessing and you're, you're not. You're just not. The potential is in us to do something great in, in County Down, in Northern Ireland, in, in our province, in our homes, in our schools. There, there, there's, a, there's, there's the ability to do something great there. But the stones and the tree trunks are going to prevent that happening. Folks, don't settle for the minimum experience of this life. Hey, 
I didn't hurt anyone. I didn't do anyone any harm. Is that the, is that the goal? What about the life that Jesus offered us in John 10, 10? I have come that they might have life and that they won't hurt anyone. That's not what he says. He says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the fullest. I want them to have a life that no one else could have outside of me. I want them to have something special. But to leave the debris in the ground and to pray for God to move in our country... It's tantamount to saying, God, see everyone else in church tonight. You've got to work in their hearts. Boy, there's so many problems in our church. There's so many problems in all these people. See them over there, and them over there, and them over there, and there. But, you know, I'm fine. You just leave me be. It's time to clear the debris. It's time to plow the field. It's not romantic. It's not pretty. It's hard. but we've got to get back to basics. If we want to see a harvest, if we want to be fruitful, it starts by plowing the field. And that will transform us and it will impact us. No exceptions. God won't revive his church until he revives us because we are the church. It's not the building. It's us. So first we have to plow the field and remove the debris. Next thing, then, we can move on. We can start sowing seed. Now, we've already talked about this in the series, so I don't really want to cover the same ground again. Let me recap the four principles that we've talked about, um, the four rules to planting seeds in the soil. Um, number one, uh, you can't change last year's harvest. So, so don't worry about the past. You've got to leave it in the past. God forgives you. You've got to forgive yourself. You've got to leave the past in behind. Number two, you reap what you sow. So if you sow good things, you'll get good things in the harvest. If you sow bad things, bitterness, sarcasm. If you get that, you're going to get that back. Number three, not only do you reap what you sow, but you reap more than you sow. One seed gives a plant with lots of seeds in it. So you're going to reap more than you sow. So if you're going to start dishing it out, it's going to come back to you. What are you sowing? You can't change the harvest. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. You reap after what, after you sow. Be patient. Those people that you're praying for, those people that you're working with, those people that you're trying to show God's love to, and you're trying to be patient with, and you're trying to show them that, that, that the life that God has for us is different, be patient because you reap after you sow. And those four principles are so essential in the Christian life. But I want you to remember the context of the book of Hosea. God has been laying down some hard truths to these people and he's offering them a chance to change. But this isn't about grace. This isn't about a willingness to just overlook things. If they say they're sorry, it's all going to be fine. That's not what this is. This isn't even about mercy where he's simply just going to not punish them anymore. It's not either of those things. This is a call to repentance. You were meant to be so much in this world. I handed so much to you. You could have been used mightily. You could have changed the world. But you've been usable and yet gone unused. So sort yourself out. 
Get yourself into a position where you can be used again. Plow the field, then start sowing seeds. Repentance, action, turning around, moving in a different direction. That's what repentance is. I started by tonight by walking through some of the layout of the book Hosea. I really should have included the first three chapters in Hosea. I started at chapter four. The first three chapters are, are that famous interaction with his wife, Hosea and Gomer. God told Hosea to go and marry her. Now, she was a prostitute, and they had three children together. And basically, from what we can gather, while the third one was still quite young, she basically leaves him. She walks out, she leaves Hosea holding the three children, and she goes back into that, um, her former employment. Okay, she goes back to having that kind of promiscuous party lifestyle where there are people showering her with money, showering her with gifts, showering her with uh, this, the kind of uh, materialistic things of, of this life. And Hosea comes and he, he, God tells him to go and find her, go to her, go and find her. So he walks through these places where good Christian men should not be going into the, the red light zones of, of, of the town, down to where all, all this kind of seedy pervertedness is going on. And he sees his wife standing naked on, on the podium for sale to the highest bidder. How much do you want for her? Names his price. Okay. She's my wife, but I will pay the price. And so not only has he, uh, does he, does, does Hosea and him belong together because they are husband and wife, but now he has redeemed her. He has bought her freedom. Now here's my question to you. Because we are Gomer in this situation. We are that wife who has known God and yet we so quickly run back to our old ways. We go back to our old habits. We allow these things to kind of ensnare us because we enjoy the cheap thrills. We enjoy that kind of um, short-term gains. Because let's be honest, sometimes it is hard. So, so we say, well, this is an easier path. The question is then, whenever Gomer stands face to face in front of Hosea again, what is she going to do with her second chance? What does she do when she's speaking to her husband again that she walked out on, that she abandoned? What does she say to the children that she walked out on? What do we do? when we see that God has offered us another chance to make something more of our lives. You're going to want to make the most of it. Because second chances don't come around very often. And yet God is faithful whenever we have been unfaithful. So our response then is to break that foul ground. We're not going to stay the way that we were. We're going to make the changes. We're going to put things right. We're going to be the people that we ought to have been before in the first place. And we're going to sow seeds. And we're going to try to be fruitful. We're going to make the most of the second chance that God has given us. See, there's hope for restoration. Because of his faithfulness to us. 
There's hope for a harvest in our lives, no matter how difficult our path has been, because he has been faithful to us. And so we sow our seeds. We live our life for him. We trust in him. And I honestly believe that from the rubble that used to dominate the field, that used to dominate our life, will come fruitfulness that will nourish and satisfy and bless others. We can't change last year's harvest. We can't change what we have used the field for before. But we can determine to change what grows in our lives from now on. And growth that reflects an appreciation for what God has done in our lives. And so we plow the field. We get rid of the debris. We start sowing good seed. That's going to make a difference. And then we reap the harvest. In Second Timothy 2, Paul uses four different images to describe a Christian. There's the teacher, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Now, in the New Testament times, in Bible times, a farm worker didn't have a set salary. You didn't get um, eight pound an hour, ten pound an hour, whatever it is, depending on your age and, and all the rest of it. What you got was you got a percentage of the profits. Okay, so if there was a big harvest, you get a big payday. If there was a small harvest, you're going to get a lot less. And that was the motivation to get everyone who's supposed to be working in the field, they're going to be working for a good harvest. They're going to all be working together and working hard to get the most of it because, well, they want a big payday. And so that was how a farmer worked. So it was a percentage, not a single lump sum or a guaranteed sum. It was dependent on the harvest. Now, the other jobs here that were mentioned, a teacher, well, their reward isn't a percentage. They get their reward in seeing their students enriched and grow, and they'll get praised for it. They can see what's happening. They, they get to um, enrich young lives. I'm sure every teacher, that, that's exactly how it feels. They get to enrich the young cherubs that are in front of them with goodness and wonderfulness, and they absorb it all like a sponge. A soldier will get their rewards from promotions and medals and commendations from their commanding officer. An athlete has the prize, a trophy, a medal, and gets cheered on by the crowds. The farmer's reward is simply being part of the harvest. Farmer has to invest a lot of himself into the work of the farm. Farming demands a lot from those who are involved. And for those of you who, who have been involved in farming, you don't need me to tell you that. It is long and it is hard. But the work needs done. Whether it's raining or sun is shining, the work still needs done. Whatever the temperatures are, you don't stop until it's done. Laziness isn't a factor in farming. If the work isn't done, then the rewards won't come. The seasons come and change whether the farmer's ready or not, so he has to plant when the time is right. He must weed and watch over the crop and harvest when nature takes its course. So out of those four characters, who would you rather be? Would you rather be the teacher that has the comfort and warmth of a classroom and you can find the joy in seeing students going on and becoming doctors and becoming lawyers and 
becoming great things and doing great things and having their own families. And you get to see that you had an imp, uh, to, uh, a role in, in doing that. What about the soldier? He has the adrenaline and the excitement of battle. He's, there's a brotherhood in the forces uh, and there's this togetherness and bond and, 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 and you get to, you've got a cause to fight for and you have a crusade to go on and there's a mission and there's, is that something that you would prefer? What about the, the athlete? The athlete has the buzz from competing. Crowds of fans cheering your name. Because the farmer doesn't really get the glory in the same way the other jobs do. Where, where's the thrill for the farmer? Yes, every now and again the farm gets really busy and there's a bit of drama, but generally speaking, uh, whenever there's buzz around a farm, it's not good. There's something normally that's gone wrong. But the daily life of a farmer is long hours, hard work, repetitive work. It can be tedious, it can be lonely. There's no students to stimulate the mind. There's no comrades to fight alongside. There's no crowd to cheer you on. Perhaps for most of us, our Christian life will be more like a farmer. We'll not necessarily have the excitement of the first three. Maybe most of our lives will on paper look like the farmer's life. Unspectacular, just a faithful labor. Sowing seed of the gospel, looking at the end result and hoping to be, to receive in part from that. Maybe people who work on a farm, they feel underpaid, overworked, underappreciated. But when it comes to the Christian life, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. His rewards are never unfair. His rewards are never undervalued. They are never late. It will always be exactly what our labor deserves. And so reap the harvest that you sow. A lot of the time it may be unspectacular. That's not the point. You're working for the reward. I remember my dad telling me that whenever myself and my two younger sisters were younger, when we went up to, um, uh, whether it was Benoan Beach or, or Port Stuart Strand or, or wherever it happened to be, um, whenever we were particularly young, they had brought a paddling pool with us. And because we were maybe just toddlers, um, we would play in the pool. They could keep an eye on us. It was safer. We were not going to get like washed out to Scotland or anything. Um, and that was fine. My dad said, though, that there was one day on the beach, and I was playing in the paddling pool. And I looked up, and I saw there was a whole ocean to play in. I never got into the paddling pool again after that. Because whenever I saw the sea, a paddling pool just doesn't cut it anymore. And I just want to encourage you this evening, as we close, don't be satisfied with a paddling pool experience of God. But look up and see the possibilities that can be grasped, that can be achieved 
when we live for him. There is an ocean that we have to go deeper. We have to go further. There's so much more to experience. The Christian life is not an easy life. It is a life of victory, but it doesn't always feel that way. But it is a life of overcoming. And the victory is found in the overcoming. And that overcoming is found in the victory of Christ on the cross. Paul said himself, be strong in the grace of Christ. And you might be thinking, well, Jeff, how, how is that supposed to be encouraging tonight? Because I want you to understand that Christianity has not been tried and found one thing. Rather, it has been found difficult and not tried. But God is steady. God is faithful. Can I tell you very quickly just how Hosea ends? There, there's two large poems at the end of the book of Hosea. In chapter 11 and chapter 14. In chapter 11, it's a lot like the prodigal son. Uh, God is talking about how he is like a loving father. And he speaks about how he's got his child by his arms and he's teaching him to walk. You know this idea, you know, when you've got uh, the kid's arms and, and you're trying to help them up and trying to teach them to walk. And he led him with love. And then it says, the son, Israel, rebels and goes off. And God, the father, goes through all these emotions of remembering of how he led them and how he taught them how to walk. And now he's walking away. And how he is angry and heartbroken at the same time. And in chapter 11, verse 8, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And then in chapter 14, God reasserts this promise that through Israel, the world will be blessed. God has not given up on using her to to, to bless the world. He has not given up on using his people for his glory. Even though he knows the fight's going to be continual, even though he knows there's going to be ups and downs, in chapter 14, verse 4, he says, but I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. This is our God. The picture is we mess up. Nobody's perfect. And even though that's not just for a reason, an excuse for us to settle into that and just own it, but even though we mess up, it's usually in the same battlegrounds. God still seeks to use each and every one of us. So break up the fallow ground. Stop being usable and going unused. God has not given up on you. God still has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. There's a reason why the trials that are coming along your way have come along your way. But do not give up on God because he has not given up on you. He is not going anywhere. But folks, maybe, just maybe tonight, it's a reminder that fruitfulness doesn't just happen. Clear the debris from your life. So seed that will bless, bless and nourish and then reap the rewards of the harvest so that God may use you. Let's pray. Oh, sorry, there's another song, isn't there? Yes, we'll, we'll sing and, and then we'll, we'll uh, close in prayer afterwards. Thanks, Robert.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not give up on us so quickly. Lord, we thank you that even though there are some maybe even in church tonight, and it's been a while since they've really thought about it, but deep down they know that they are not where they used to be with you, or they are not where they ought to be with you. And yet, Lord, you are a God who gives second chances. You're a God who is faithful. You're a God who wants to forgive and wants to restore. If only we would admit where we are is in the wrong place. Lord, that we're prepared to dig out these things that hold us back and hinder the harvest and hinder our fruitfulness for you. Lord, that we would begin that process of repentance where we not only stop going the wrong direction, but we turn and start moving in a different direction altogether towards you. Lord, I pray that you be with those tonight who have to dig out some fairly deep stones. You have to start digging out roots that go very deep and go past a lot of raw nerves into the very depth of who they are. Lord, give them a resolve to do that. Get alone with you and and to work through it. And Lord, I pray that each and every person here tonight would not just have settle for that minimalist approach to life. But Lord, that we might have life and have it abundantly. And we ask this in your precious and lovely and beautiful name. Amen.